You're listening to a sermon from Leewood Baptist Church. For more information about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. Today, we'll continue on today in 1 John. We've seen so far in 1 John that really the theme of the book is is exploring what is authentic faith in Jesus Christ look like. How can we have the confidence that we are truly believers, that we are truly Christians, that we have truly experienced saving faith in our lives? I'll say this statement again. We can go to church for decade upon decade and be just as lost and unsaved as someone who has never stepped foot in a church. Going to church, being a good person does not save us. We might be able to in and of ourselves with what other, whatever amount of willpower that we have, we may be able to be good for a period of time. But just like when we make New Year's resolutions about eating and exercising and being healthy, we're still going to fall because in and of ourselves, we are not able to be good. And so this morning, I trust that we're each here because we don't want the status quo in our lives, that we want to be changed. Our lives need to be changed, and our lives can only be changed through the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross and in His resurrection. And so we've been exploring what does true, authentic faith in Jesus look like? See, that was a question that was being asked 2,000 years ago in the early church. Because the early church had been infiltrated by false teachers spreading false gospel about Christ, they began to doubt their salvation, doubt if they really truly believed Jesus. And so John did the early church under the inspiration of God John did the early church a, a great favor. He's done us a great favor in that he begins listing out evidences of true faith. Now, these evidences that we've seen in 1 John don't save us. They are an evidence of faith, of a life that is changed. Because as I've been going through this and reading this, I've realized, you know, in my own willpower, I can do some of these things. I can be a pretty loving person until someone makes me mad. I can be a pretty giving person until I wake up one morning and I'm selfish. So what does true, authentic life change look like? These are evidences of faith. We've seen that An authentic Christian is someone that's going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit over sin. A true, authentic believer in Jesus is not going to be able to keep on sinning. There's going to be friction. There's going to be conflict and what we call conviction there. We're not talking about guilt. There's a difference between guilt and conviction. The Holy Spirit will make us miserable, will not allow us to continue to sin. We will sin, but we will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit over it. We've seen that we will not live as if we have no sin. We will not live as of a spiritual pride and and a facade of living with we have no sin. No, an authentic Christian is going to be transparent about their sin. John gave us an evidence of an authentic Christian as being someone that is obedient to God. An authentic believer is also going to be progressively becoming more like Jesus. 
We saw that as Christians, as authentic Christians, is someone that is in a love relationship with Christ. We call that abiding in Christ, remaining in Christ. And because of that love relationship of abiding in Christ, within that relationship, that Christian is going to become more and more like Jesus because they're, they're, they're in a relationship with Jesus. We've also seen that an authentic Christian is going to love their brother and sister in Christ. They're going to have patience with one another because they are in the same standing. We've seen that a true believer does not love the world. Now, we're not talking about the globe or the people of the world, but the system that is against God, that a true believer does not love the world or the things of the world. And we talked about materialism, about a a true authentic believer is not going to find their hope in their money, in their possessions. We talked about that a true, authentic believer, we talked more about what that love for the brothers and sisters is supposed to look like, that it's supposed to be a self-sacrificing love, that a true, authentic believer is going to die to their own wants, needs, desires, and preferences. And so this week, we're going to walk through 1 John 4, 7 through 21. There's a lot here. And this is an extremely rich passage of Scripture. Have you ever gone to um, my favorite vacation spot in all the world is Estes Park? I love Estes Park. How many of you have ever been to Estes Park? It's awesome. One of my favorite things about going into Estes Park is in going into those fudge shops. You know what I'm talking about? You walk in and you just almost get knocked over by the smell of chocolate and sugar. And every time we go in there, we go in there and we buy a block of chocolate. Like that's what they cut up. They cut off blocks of chocolate and they have different flavors. You can have nuts in it or you could have, you know, they have different kinds of flavors. But you go in there and they cut off just a gigantic hunk, a block of chocolate. And when you eat that, do you eat that whole block of chocolate just sitting there in that chocolate shop at Nessus Park? Do you do that? Yes or no? No. Because if you do, you're going to be in a coma for three days. Why? Because that chocolate is so rich. It's so, well, it's good, but it's not good for you. But it's so good. Like, I truly believe that when the Bible talks about manna falling from heaven, it's talking about fudge from Estes Park. You look at it, and that's what I see. And you look and you eat it and it's so rich, it's so good, but you can't finish it at one time. I mean, that'll automatically give you diabetes. You cannot just eat that whole piece of chocolate. It's too much. It's too good. That is what we're walking through 1 John 4, 7 through 21. This passage is rich. And this morning, I'm going to do my best to cut off a piece and a hunk about the love of God this morning. But you're not going to be able to digest it all. I'm not going to be able to digest it all because we'll go into a good spiritual coma. And so I encourage you, as we walk through this passage this morning, it's going to go fast. It's going to be a lot. It's going to be rich, but you're going to have to take some home and eat it later. This week in our community groups, we will digest. We'll break off more piece of that fudge of 1 John 4 and digest 
and eat some more off of it. So what I'm saying, what's about to happen in the next 25 minutes, that you're not going to get the full effect. You're not going to get the full taste. You're going to have to take a piece of this fudge home, okay? So let's start in verse 7 of 1 John chapter 4. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among, in this, among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this. So if you want to know what spiritual love is, here's the recipe for it. You ready? Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So right here, just in these four verses that we read, there's a lot to break down and digest. So let's start doing it. John writes, he says, dear friends, dear church, dear faith family, let us love one another because love is from God. Now, when we're talking about spiritual love, we need to go back to the origin of love. The origin, the originator of love is God. And not just love, God is the originator of everything. Everything starts and stops with God, even love. It starts and stops with God. So if we can't even wrap our minds around that, like to, to be a believer in Christ, we have to wrap our minds immediately around that God is the originator of everything, even love. Everything in life, everything in our world starts and stops with God. That's why in Genesis 1, we read, in the beginning, what's the next word? God. It starts with God. In Revelation 21, it stops. Well, it doesn't really stop. It keeps going with God for all of eternity. So because love is from God. Now it keeps going. It says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now that word born of God might sound funny. There was another guy that that word born of God was funny to. Anyone know who that was? It was Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Jesus was meeting with a member of the Pharisees, Nicodemus. Nicodemus had all kinds of questions for Jesus. You can read about this in John chapter 3. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And what was Nicodemus' response to that? Are you crazy? Can a man enter back into his mother's womb and be born again? Now, Jesus was not talking about physical birth. He was talking about being spiritually born. And so John comes back to this idea, and he says, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Then it says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And that's a rational argument, isn't it? This is pretty rational, 
Because if God is love, if love originates from God, someone that is a Christian born of God and knows God is in a relationship with God, they are then into going to love. It's a natural byproduct. It goes hand in hand. So a person that does not have the capability of love, and we're not talking about the love we would have for a spouse, a love relationship. That's not what we're talking about, a romantic love. We're not talking about the love that as parents and grandparents we have for our kids and grandkids. We're talking about a self-sacrificing love. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. And then John takes us in verses 9 and 10. He begins to break down God's love. I love the song that Roxanne played during the time of worship through giving, how great the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, like we can't measure this. So this love we're talking about, I feel like just talking about God's love, it just feels so small and trite, but it's, it's massive, it's huge. But John says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. John's saying, if we want to see what God's love looks like, If we want to know God's love, here's what it looks like. Let me pull back the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz. Let me let you see the inner workings of God's love. It says this, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Every one of us want to experience life to the fullest. We want to experience life. Now that looks different to each of us based upon our personality and the way God made us, but we all want to live. I'm not talking about being alive, but we want to experience life. We want to travel. We want to have family. We want to experience great things. But John says that God sent his one and only son of the world so that we might live through him. We can't experience life apart from Christ. Now, that's interesting. It says that God sent his one and only son of the world. God did not send one of his kids to save us. It's easy for us to begin thinking like that. We can easily get confused that God sent one of his kids to come save us. That's not what happened at all. God came in in the flesh. God came in as a human being in Jesus so that we might live through him. But John keeps breaking down this love. He says, love consists in this. Now, this is, this is really important. Underline this, circle this, don't miss this. It says, love consists in this. Not that we loved God. Underline that phrase, not that we loved God. Do you know when we are born into this world, we are not capable of loving God? It's not in our DNA. We can't. We're born that way. We cannot love God. You say, Adam, really? Yes. Because we're born in this world sinners. We sin, and sin is rebellion against God. That is shaking our fist at God. It's in our nature. It's in our DNA. We cannot help it. And so if we rebel, if we shake our fist at God, 
and we go our own way and do our own thing, that is not love. So we are not capable of loving God. We need to avoid the temptation of thinking that we're doing God some favor by, doing, by being a Christian. We need to avoid the temptation of the idea that we're doing God some kind of favor by loving him. God doesn't need us. God does not need us to exist. God does not need us to receive pleasure. God does not need us to receive glory and be, to be made known. So we've got to come into that basic understanding is that God loved us. We did not love him. So not that we loved God. Love is made up of this. Not that we loved God, but a miracle happens. But that he loved us. God initiates the love. God makes the first move. God loved us. And the reason why we can sing a song, how deep the Father's love for us, how great beyond all measure, is because God loved a rebel. God loved someone. He loved you. He loved me. Someone that was shaking their fist at him, running from him, wanting to have nothing to do with him. But he loved us. Why does God love us? Have you ever thought about that? Because you and I are not capable of loving like God loves. We're not. Because our love comes with conditions, doesn't it? With our spouses, we say, you love and you'll do this, right? There's conditions to our love. Our human love, there's conditions. With our own kids, you'll love me, you will eat your dinner if you love me. If you love me, you'll go to bed. Our love comes with conditions all the time. And so when we think about that love, God's love, we are someone that is like that obedient child that won't eat or won't go to bed, but God still loved us. And it doesn't just stop there. It says then at the end of verse 10, and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So God loves us so much that he initiated a way for us to be in a relationship with him. Because of our sin and our rebellion, we cannot have a relationship with God. Why? Because he's holy, we're not. So there's a vast chasm, a vast space between us and God. So God says, I want to bring that space back. And here's how he did it. He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So let's talk about this. God initiated his love for us. Even John 3, 16, it says what? For God so loved the world. It's, again, love starts with God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, have eternal life. And so John comes back to this idea and he says, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice of our sins. So God loved us so much that he came. God said, I love these terrible people, these rebellious people 
that I'm going to come and be the atoning sacrifice for their sins. So let's talk about atonement for a second. That's a big word. What does it mean that Jesus is our atoning sacrifice for our sins? It just simply means this. The work that Christ did, so what Jesus did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So Jesus lived the life that we could not live. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. He was perfect. He never sinned. So Jesus lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we could not die. See, we can't even die for our own sins. Why? Because we're, we're sinful. That's not going to work. That exchange isn't going to work. So the life that Jesus lived enables him to die the death that we could not die. His perfect, blameless sacrifice on the cross to do what? To earn our salvation. Only Jesus can do that. Only God can do that. To live a life and to die a death to earn our salvation. But the beauty is he doesn't stay dead, does he? He comes back to life. Why? To defeat sin and death. So even in his life, he lives a life that we're not able to live in his resurrection. All of that that comes together, everything that Jesus did to earn our salvation is called atonement. So that atoning sacrifice for our sins. Sin is costly. It's very, very expensive. And it costs the life of God and the flesh to remove our sin. That is costly. That is priceless. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us while we were, while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. When you read that in Romans 5, 8, it's almost like Paul can't even comprehend this. God shows his love for us while we were still sinners. This does not make sense to me that anyone would do this. But Christ died for us. That is the great love of God. But let's keep going and let's read verse 11. Dear friends, if God loves us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we are to remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Here, John is giving a little bit of personal testimony. Isn't personal testimony pretty powerful? Even in our own courts, in the laws of our nation, personal testimony is really powerful. So John, as he's writing this, 
he writes and he says, we have seen and we testify. John is saying, I've seen this with my own two eyes. Where John was one of the 12 disciples. He walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus. He saw Jesus teach. He was there with Jesus as he was dying on the cross. And Jesus looked at John and he asked John to take care of his earthly mother and Mary. So if anyone can speak to this, it was John. And John says, we have seen, we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. You know what John is saying? John is saying, church, this is true. I've seen it. I've touched it. I know it's real. And under the inspiration of God, he records this. Then he goes on, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him. That idea when we read God remains in us and God remains in him, that idea that God lives in us and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. So this goes back to the idea up in verse 11. He says, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also might, must love one another. See, because sin was so costly for God to come to this earth and die for us, it was also costly because Jesus had to come die for us, and he had to, as Philippians 2 says, he gave up all the glories of heaven to do this. And so John presents us with another rational argument. He says, if God loved us in this way, we also might, must love one another. So how would we describe God's love? A self-sacrificing love. God didn't have to do this. Jesus didn't have to die. Jesus did not have to atone for our sins. He did not have to do it, but he still did it because he loved us. So that self-sacrificing love. And so when John says that we must love one another, if we are true, authentic believers, if we love one another, we ought to love each other in the exact same way. That exact same way, that self-sacrificing love that Jesus had for us. And you know what? That takes a miracle. That takes a miracle because as I've said consistently through this series of 1 John, we are born into this world as babies, as extreme narcissists. It is all about us. From the moment we come out of the womb, it is all about us. And so it takes a great miracle of God, a transforming work of God in our hearts and lives to even have the capability to love someone self-sacrificially so self-sacrificially that we would give our physical life yes for them, but also that we would be willing to die to ourselves, that we would be willing to die to our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, and our own preferences. And to be able to die like that takes a miracle of God in our lives. It takes a transforming life. And so if we have that capability of dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences, then that is an evidence of salvation. But if we are not capable of dying to our own way, 
our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, and our own preferences, we need to take a long, hard look under the microscope and ask ourselves, am I truly a believer in Jesus? Let's keep unpacking this. Verse 17. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. All right, again, there's a lot to unpack here. He said in verse 17, and this love is made complete with us. I think of this idea in that God's love being made complete with us, it comes full circle, right? We have a circle, it doesn't end, it just, it's, it's complete, it's whole. And so God initiates his love to us and the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We are then blessed. God changes. If we're authentic, true believers, God changes us till we re- our sin is revealed to us. We confess our sin. We confess Christ. We follow after Christ. And then a byproduct of that is that we have this self-sacrificing love for the brothers and sisters. And so God's love is made complete in this self-sacrificial love. And he says, with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Faith, family, I know this is not a fun thing to think about, but there is a day of judgment. It is coming. It is real. And just as real as you and I are sitting here together Just as real as we are sitting in this room together, we will stand before God and be held accountable for our lives. It's real. We're not making this up. This isn't going to be some dreamlike state. This is going to happen. And he says, in this love is made complete with us so that we have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. So what it says here in this phrase, because as he is, so also are we in this world, we're supposed to be the representatives of Jesus in this world. Just as we have representatives in Washington, D.C., and we won't talk much about those people, but just as we have representatives in Washington, D.C. that are supposed to be representing us, we are on this earth to represent Jesus to make Jesus known, and in that love is made complete. But verse 18, remember last week when we talked about the difference between doubt and assurance? John gives us some assurance. He says, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect 
love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. See, faith family, if we are true, authentic believers in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear on that day of judgment. And you know that, why that is? Because if we're true, authentic Christians and to true, authentic Christians and believers in Jesus Christ, that that day of judgment is not based upon what we have done. Praise God. That day of judgment is not going to be about if we have given a lot of money, thankfully, because some of us don't have much of it to give. That day of judgment is not going to be based upon if we volunteered a lot of hours for some charitable organization. That day of judgment is not going to be based upon if we said the right prayers and knew the Bible verses and went to Bible studies and went to church. What that day of judgment is going to be based upon is if we have truly believed on the work and life of Jesus Christ and what he's done. It's not based on anything that we've done. And that is freeing. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That we as Christians do not have to fear judgment because of what Jesus has done, not based on what we've done. Because if it is based on what we've done, then we have much to fear. And so on that day of judgment, we will all stand before Christ and we must have truly believed in Jesus. And that day of judgment, there is fear in a sense there because Jesus even told his disciples, he said, on that day, there will be many that will be stand before me and say, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we heal the sick in your name? Didn't we do all these really good things in your name? And Jesus told his disciples, he said, I will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. So we have to be sure that we are not basing our salvation on anything that we are doing, but what Christ has done. And when our faith is based on what Christ has done, it says we do not have to fear. That perfect love of Christ, verse 18, drives out fear. Because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And then he closes it out. He says, we love because he first loved us. We're not capable of loving in a self-sacrificial way. But it's only because of the love of God. And it says again, he comes back around to this idea. If anyone, hates, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. Now, we might sit here and think, I would never say I hate anybody, Right? But when we don't live in a self-sacrificial way of dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences, we're hating. We're making someone more important than us. And true love, as Jesus said, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than someone that lays down his life for his friends. And so this self-sacrificial love that we're talking about is dying to ourselves for the benefit of somebody else. Self-sacrificial love is dying to our own wants, needs, desires, and preferences, dying to ourselves for the benefit of somebody else. 
And if we are not capable of doing that spiritually, John says we are a liar because we cannot say we love God and yet not love others in a self-sacrificial way. In verse 21, he closes it out. He says, and we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. And in this circle of love that starts with God initiating his love towards us, that transforming work of salvation in our lives, this transforming work leads to a self-sacrificial love. And in this, God's love is made complete. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for coming to this earth to die for us. God, thank you for initiating your love to us. Even though we are sinners, you still loved us and you died for us. What great love. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here in this large group of people, God, if there's anyone here that has never truly believed in you to where their lives have been changed by you, I pray that you would use your word to work in their life. Holy Spirit, convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself. God, I then pray for those that are here that are believers in you. God, I pray that you would continue to test us, try us, refine us, make our love for you and for other people more and more perfect. God, we ask that you would do whatever it takes. Change us to be like Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you're in the Kansas City area, we'd love to have you be our guest. We're located at 8200 State Line Road in Leewood, Kansas. Worship services are on Sunday mornings at 1030. To learn more about us, visit our website at leewoodbaptist.com. Music